to another episode of Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. I'm alone today uh, to talk about Micah 7. Uh, Before I get into the text, I wanted to bring up um, an exciting change in um, things involving the show. We launched a Patreon page that uh, was just last week, and it's, uh, of course, patreon.com backslash trans regret Snoopy. And you can go there and um, and signing up to be a patron will get you access uh, to, uh, for a $5 patron tier, will get you access to our patron-only Discord, and it will also get you access to bonus content. Should be at least twice a month. And um, that will also be, uh, along with some group Bible studies and um, sort of... um, joint conversations that we'll be having with folks live on the Discord. So it's very exciting, and and I encourage you to check it out. Uh, But back to the Bible. Uh, Micah is uh, one of the minor prophets. Micah was um, one who focused, because he was part of uh, sort of the laity, he was was part of um, sort of a lower class of people at the time, unlike some of the uh, prophets were, he speaks to um, a sort of social justice aspect in his preaching about the iniquities of the Israelites. Um, he speaks to uh, the kind of sins that affect the downtrodden and affect the poor already and and how that particular kind of sin is uniquely offensive to God because it hurts those that are already put down. It hurts those that are already weak. In society. So like normal, I'm going to read a little bit of an intro. Um, I'll read part of the intro actually from the voice, and then I'm going to skip over to a paragraph that I thought was particularly interesting in the NRSV. Um, skipping into the second paragraph in the voice intro, it says, as with many other figures in the Bible, very little is known about Micah the prophet. The first few verses of the book indicate that he is prophesying during the last decades of the 8th century BC and perhaps into the 7th century. He's from a small village about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem that has built up around a trading route, so he may be a merchant, giving him ample opportunity to travel throughout the region. He considers himself a true prophet, bearing true words from God, unlike the many false prophets who tell people what they want to hear. His message is one of judgment for the rich and powerful who neglect the covenant and one of liberation for the poor and downtrodden who embrace it. For Micah, faithfulness to God is not just a matter of mastering the forms of religion and performing the requisite rituals. No, true faith embodies love and expresses itself in humility and acts of justice and kindness. So I've been skeptical of the um, sort of social justice interpretations of biblical scripts in in, um, reflecting it onto Uh, our world today, because the world that we live in today, of course, is so wildly different from the one that um, they lived in at the time. But I think this this sort of uh, struggle between the rich and the poor is eternal, at least in as much as there will always be some who are 
at an advantage and some that are at a disadvantage. And so I, I would encourage anybody that's using this text to inform their political views or how they feel about the class war, as it were, in our society, um, I would encourage them to tread lightly and understand that this is a, a very, very different culture uh, than the one that we're in today. All the same, the message, like everywhere else in the Bible, carries through into our lives in one way or another. Uh, in the NRSV, they point out in the intro that, unlike Isaiah, Micah was neither of a noble descent nor a native of the capital city. So there were prophets who were already in a position of um, privilege and power in society, and Micah did not have that advantage. Um, So you'll see him have some very strong words for the rich. It's said that Micah would prophesy in the nude without clothing. So if you want to picture that while we read this, Uh, that may be more entertaining for you. So Micah 7 begins with a warning, and uh, like all the books in Micah, emphasizes how badly screwed up things truly are in the society of the Israelites right now. Uh, This is at a a point in time where the the kingdom had kind of split into the north and to the south. And as a result, there were kind of um, two different subcultures being developed within the Israelite. And um, this kind of fractionating of the Israelites uh, led to, I think, uh, distancing from the covenant that they had made with God. And we'll just jump right in because uh, Mike obviously says it better than I can. Uh, The header in the ESV for Micah 7 is, wait for the God of salvation. Woe is me, For I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. I'll pause there. The characterization that we're getting here is um, sort of from the perspective of the entire nation of Jews at this point. Uh, This wasn't specifically one person saying, woe is me. This was Micah crying out for his people, uh, recognizing their flaws and recognizing what a a desolate... uh, time they were living in. One of my favorite Christianisms is a season of life. Um, This is something that we talk about or use regularly as a phrase to say uh, a period of time that is kind of um, nondescript, uh, nonspecific, and it describes a particular happening in the lives of people. Um, You know, there will be seasons in our life where we struggle more with sin. There will be seasons in our lives where we feel more connected with God. Um, In this particular season of the chosen people, this was, we'll say it's fall. Uh, If spring is a time where, and I heard a really great uh, sermon this morning from a church in Calgary where they used this metaphor, I thought it was really helpful to imagine how the nation was at this particular time. 
if spring is a time of, of growth and bounty, uh, and summer is a full stride of faith and connection and um, rejoicing in the covenant, then fall is where things start to kind of die off. Um, the, the, the leaves fall off the trees. The, um, the harvest has been gathered. The fruits have been picked. And we're now looking at, um, at sort of a, more of a barren land. It's not, uh, it's not freezing cold. It's not, it's not completely dead. But it is picked over spiritually. So this is the time that Micah is living in. Micah is living in a time where people got a little comfortable with being the chosen people. Uh, they got a little comfortable with feeling like they were secure in their covenant with God, that God had chosen them, God loves them, God will protect them, God will forgive them, God will do anything for them. While that may be true, we know from other parts of the Old Testament that God is not thrilled about people seeing their relationship with him that way. Uh, he doesn't like to be taken for granted, um, which is, is really kind of fascinating because it, it gives him kind of an attitude uh, and, and makes him seem a little human in this way. But I digress. Uh, God is seeing the sins of the Israelites and saying outright, this has to change. This will need to change. And so in Micah speaking the word of God, he's saying, these people are hunting each other. They're fighting each other. They're lying in wait and they're hunting each other with a net. In this sort of cutthroat world does reflect onto the world that we're living in today. Um, we live in a, a society that I feel has a lot more interest in cultivating our own status, cultivating our own reputation, and not as much on the collective health and collective well-being and um, collective prosperity of God's people. So everyone's hands are on evil, and everyone in a position of power is asking for a bribe. There is no spiritual fruit to gather anymore. It has been gathered. Uh, we need to wait out this season because there's going to be something even worse coming. And we'll learn about that. So jumping back in at verse four, the best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them, a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. And I'll pause. This is how bad things are for them. Even your wife, even your brother, even your son has now become an enemy of yours. This is how cutthroat people have become. They will use each other. They will get whatever they can from those even closest to them, even those they share a home with. And they will become your enemy. It's a scary prospect, right? And uh, in all of these books, uh, especially um, 
prophets like Habakkuk and Micah, in these, uh, these prophets, they turn at the end of a lot of their chapters. They'll turn and say, but, and the but is always a, it's, it's a big but, it's an important but. Uh, it turns and it says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. And the way I read that was executes judgment against me. I know that I have a loving God. I know that I have a God that cares for me. I know that I have a God that will be my light in the darkness. I know I have a God that will pick me up when I fall down. But I also know that I have a God that has every right and every power to judge my sins and and punish me for them. And I don't necessarily ascribe to this notion that God is constantly watching us, keeping a notebook of all of the sins that we commit, and then finding out ways to screw up our life as a, as a, as a punishment for them. But I do think there's a potential that as a society, we can become so repugnant, we can become so terrible that God will move in ways that we do not expect and change things for us in ways that we do not expect. It's hard not to see the way that our churches are falling one after another, the way that the people in power in our churches are being exposed to be liars and cheaters and thieves and abusive, that this may be in some way or another, God exposing these people may be to say, they're not the only ones sinning. We all sin. But especially those who are in a position of power like that should never be the ones that are committing these sins against God. And that's really what they are. When you are, when you are one that speaks the voice of God, you cannot uh, be heavy with sin in that way. Now, everyone sins, right? And, and this is something that we can't control. We're never going to be able to stop that. There is a sin of happenstance. There is a sin of impulse. There's a sin that exists in our lives that will happen again and again that we simply can't control because we're human and we're fallen and we're impulsive and we're hormonal and we are um, uh, weak, there is another kind of sin that is premeditated, the kind of sin that we know is wrong, the kind of sin that we know that we can fight against and choose not to. That, I think, is truly what upsets God. My sin has been weighing very heavily on me in the past few weeks. I have felt acutely that God is not happy with what I do and, and how I live. And as much as I try to change the things that I do, how I speak and how I act, how I move around in the world, I do feel stuck in certain things. So it helps me greatly to know that even though there is a God out there, 
this God that will act on my behalf in ways that perhaps I don't really understand or don't know, that God may also judge me for it and has every right to execute judgment for me. So back into halfway through verse 9. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. Obviously, uh, there is uh, a number of enemies that the Israelites were uh, contending against at this point in time. Uh, there is one in particular that God is, the, the prophets are warning that God is threatening to send to destroy the kingdom, to destroy the temple, to create this winter of uh, spirituality for, for the people of Israel. And we'll speak about them in a little bit. But the enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her now. She will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. The way this is worded leaves something to be desired for me. So I wanted to switch over to the voice so that maybe we can get a little clearer an idea of what it is that Mike is saying. We're going to go back to the beginning of 9. It says, I must bear his anger because I have sinned against him until he argues on my behalf and writes all my wrongs. He will bring me out into the light, and then I will see his saving justice. When my enemy sees that God has rescued me, then shame will wash over her. Because she sneered to me, where is the eternal, your God? It will be my turn to watch when she is trampled, walked on like mud in the street. And I think that clarifies a little bit. Even though I recognize that I have sinned, even though I recognize that God will act against me in some way or judge me in some way because of my sins, he will also bring me up from that. He will redeem me from that. He will help me understand what I did wrong and help me try to correct how I'm acting. And in that, then the one who is your enemy, even if it's your son, even if it's your brother, even if it's your roommate, will see that's what that's how God has acted in your life. Um, nothing in our faith, be you uh, a Christian or a Jew, uh, anything that, that draws directly from this text has ever assured you, <laughs> nowhere in the book, has ever assured you that um, your faith will provide you bountiful life on earth. This is not our domain. This is not the place where we should be most comfortable. Um, it should be uncomfortable to sin it should be uncomfortable to give ourselves to the world. Uh, the world does not care about our covenant with God. The world does not care about our connection with God. So, yes, your enemy may see this, and then they will be shamed too. So I like the way that the voice put that. I thought it was really helpful. This reminded me of a of a section of the Imitation of Christ, which I haven't I haven't gone back to in a little while, so I'm excited to read a little bit more from this. Um, it is from chapter 31. It says how we should forget. Uh, the The title is how we should forget all created things, that we may find our Creator. 
Lord, I have great need of your grace, of your great singular grace, before I arrive where no creature will hinder me from perfect contemplation of you. As long as any transitory thing holds me or rules within me, I cannot fly freely to you. He desires to fly without hindrance, who says, who shall give me wings like the dove that I may fly into the bosom of my Savior and into the place of his blessed wounds and rest there? I see well that no man is more at rest in this world than he who always has his mind and his whole intentions directed upward to God and desires nothing from the world. It behooves him, therefore, who should perfectly forsake himself and behold you, to rise above all creatures and himself also, and through elevation of mind to see and behold that you, maker of all things, have nothing like to yourself among all creatures. Unless a man is clearly delivered from all love of creatures, he cannot fully attend to his creator. This is the chief reason why there are so few contemplatives, that is to say, because there are so few who will willingly set themselves apart from the love of creative things. There's a passage in Micah that implies that God doesn't really care about what sacrifices you make for him. Um, this isn't like sacrifices of spirit or sacrifices of, um, of time or efforts, but um, literal physical sacrifices. This was a time where folks thought that how you were forgiven and how you atoned and how you made peace with God was to bring a calf or a, a goat or a sheep and bring it and slaughter it and sacrifice it to God. And Micah implies that God doesn't really care about that kind of sacrifice. God cares about your faith. God cares about your actions. God cares about how you treat others in this world, uh, not your physical goods that you're bringing and sacrificing. There are a lot of people that will go through the motions in faith. They will say, well, I do this and I do this. I, I go to this service. I do this prayer group. And therefore, I'm at peace with God. And, and that then allows them to go about their lives operating however they'd like. I don't think that that's how God wants us to practice our faith and, and connect with him. Not because I don't think it's important to have some kind of ritual. Actually, I think it's very important to find a ritual that works for you. But because, and I've said this before on the show, if it becomes some kind of checklist for you, then the real connection that you make with God is really not the focus. The focus is checking off the boxes. That's troublesome because we can't simply go from motion to motion to motion while ignoring the real impact of our actions. And that's what I think that was happening at this particular time for the Israelites. They were, um, they were very comfortable. They thought, if this is going to be, uh, we're just going to be the chosen people forever. This is great. Uh, while the rich who were feeling that way were continuing to um, create their empire, so to speak, uh, while they were continuing to enrich themselves, 
the poor were getting more and more downtrodden. The poor were feeling more and more put upon. People's land was being sold out from under them because they were poor. And, and obviously you can see why, based on the ancient laws that they were supposed to be living, why that would be a problem. So I went on a little bit of a tangent there, but let's jump back in at verse 11. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundaries shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because it's inha- because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears will be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn dread, turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. What's being presented here is actually kind of an optimistic future. The new Jerusalem. Um, this is a new kingdom that Micah is, is prophesying here. Micah is saying that someday, even those that would otherwise attack you or enslave you, will come to you and rejoice with you in this kingdom that God has created for you. They will be amazed at what God has created for you. Micah is saying, at this time, people from across the sea, from across the land, will all come. But before that happens, the earth will be desolate because of how the inhabitants and because of how the inhabitants of the earth have acted. So this is a revelation, right? We're talking about the, the world will be destroyed before it is reborn. It's a death of, it's a death of, a, of some kind. Um, the society that you have, the, the, the land that you have built your riches upon will become desolate and dead. And then God will recreate it. God will make a new land that all nations will unify under and rejoice in in this new kingdom. That to me speaks of kind of a, a kind of apocalypse. Obviously, this language is all very specific to this particular tribe of chosen people. But we know that the way that this language was moved forward in the New Testament uh, was a much more global way of framing this new kingdom. This new Jerusalem isn't necessarily just going to be Egyptians and Assyrians. Um, you kind of zoom out a little bit in the New Testament. And had, had those writers known the kingdoms beyond even that area, beyond Greece, uh, beyond Asia, beyond all those places, how many more people would hear the word of God and come to the gospel with open arms. I mean, what an incredible thing, right? That only happens, though, after 
a death that only happens though after it crumbles. Uh, and that's a scary prospect because the nations will, will see the glory of this creation and be ashamed of the might, perhaps because they will be ashamed of knowing that the Israelites were mighty too, and they had to be crushed in order for this new kingdom to be created. I mean, it's kind of a beautiful thing. I actually love the, the language the ESV uses here too. It says, they shall lick the dust like a serpent and the crawling things of the earth. So the final turn in this passage is an important one. Like at the end of every chapter in Micah, there's a small consolation. There's something that reassures us. The header in the ESV at verse 18 is God's steadfast love and compassion. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So this compassion, this pardoning of sins, the faithfulness that God is going to show to these people, it's implied, and based on a passage in Micah 5, this is implying that a Savior will actually come to bring us closer to God and to reconcile our sins and to cast our sins out into the sea. And perhaps the, the kingdom itself won't crumble, but the sinful infrastructure, the sinful power of the kingdom will crumble through the introduction of this Savior into the world. In Micah 5, I'll just read a little bit of this. It's, it's, it's fairly... It's fairly vague, but I think the specific mention of Bethlehem is important uh, with regards to a Jesus prophecy. Uh, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until this time. When she is in labor, has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So we see little bits of Jesus' prophecy throughout the prophets. And this one, again, fairly vague, but the specific mention of Bethlehem feels important, feels significant. So what I really love about these closing verses is that God, while God has every right, like it said early on in this chapter, while God has every right to judge us, while God has every right to be angry at us, he doesn't hold on to that anger. Uh, he may feel that anger for us, he may act in ways that portray that anger. 
He doesn't hang on to it because he delights in steadfast love. God's steadfast love, his grace, and his compassion for us is what continues forever. His anger doesn't stay. His frustration with us and our sins doesn't stay. His love for us stays. You have to know that when somebody that you love behaves in a way that you don't like, you don't stay angry at them forever. Usually if that love is real, if that love is strong, then you curse under your breath. You walk into the next room. uh, You know, you slam the door. uh, And then you get over that anger until you need to, uh, until you've calmed down enough that you can realize that the love you have for this person is so much more important than the anger that you felt when they did this thing that you didn't like. God will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. So not only will God continue to love us, not only will he continue to have the grace and steadfast love for us, he will actually help us get over this sin. Like it said back in verse 10, he will tread, he will help us pull us back out of the sin that we've committed and pull us back out of our sinful ways and tread the iniquities underfoot. Show us what that, that the way we were behaving is dirt on the ground because he wants so badly for us to be reconnected to him and, and to be fully embracing the love that he has for us. I think it's really incredible. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. I like to think sometimes when I feel the weight of my sin, I feel the weight of my past, I feel the weight of how I acted even yesterday, I said something I shouldn't have. I behaved in a way that I shouldn't. It feels like a, like kind of a cloak or like a weight, uh, like a sandbag that I'm having to carry. And I love this image. In 19, it says that he will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. He's going to take that sandbag off your back. He's going to throw it in the ocean. It's not doesn't doesn't really mean that you're not going to have another sandbag there in a couple of days, but it, it's a beautiful image to think that God actually can do this for us. God can not just give us hope for the future, for a new kingdom, but even in the here and now, God can take our sins and lift them off of us and show us the light, be our light in the darkness, that he walks with us and continually picks the bugs out of our hair. It's kind of a funny image. Well, I didn't, um, I didn't have much more to add on this particular passage, but there was a prayer that I saw uh, in the Book of Common Prayer that I'd like to go through quickly um, before we close the episode. Uh, the Book of Common Prayer is amazing. I recommend it for anyone, even if you don't fall into any of the Catholic traditions, Episcopal traditions, or otherwise, there are some beautiful prayers in here. Um, Some of them have language that's a little tough to get through, so if I stumble, I apologize. But there is a section in in the back of the Book of Common Prayer called Family Prayer. And this particular prayer that I found, I thought was um, really beautiful. For all poor, homeless, and neglected folk. O God, almighty and merciful, who healest those that are broken in heart and turnest the sadness of the sorrowful to joy, let thy fatherly goodness be upon all 
that thou hast made. Remember in pity, such as are this day, destitute, homeless, or forgotten of their fellow men. Bless the congregation of thy poor. Uplift those who are cast down. Mightily befriend innocent sufferers and sanctify to them the endurance of their wrongs. Cheer with hope all discouraged and unhappy people, and by thy heavenly grace, preserve from falling those whose penury tempteth them to sin. Though they be troubled on every side, suffer them not to be distressed. Though they be perplexed, save them from despair. Grant this, O Lord, for the love of him who for our sakes became poor, thy Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, the poem today is by Charles Bukowski, which I thought was fitting. It is called True from his collection. You get so alone at times that it just makes sense. One of Lorca's best lines is agony, always agony. Think of this when you kill a cockroach or pick up a razor to shave or awaken in the morning to face the sun. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.